Hello, and welcome back to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science, mostly. My name is Natalie Binet. Today is April 2nd, 2020. As of today, at approximately 4 p.m. Eastern Time, there are over 1 million confirmed cases of novel coronavirus worldwide and over 51,000 deaths. In the United States, the rate of new infections is climbing, with 240,000 nationwide, 92,000 of which are from New York State alone. The death toll also continues to climb, with 5,800 deaths nationwide. Today's show is all about information. How do we get it? How can we cope with it? Who can we trust? What are the numbers that we have available, able to tell us? It feels like a lifetime since the world shifted, but it has only been since March 11 that the WHO declared the outbreak an official pandemic. I remember thinking it was an obvious declaration at the time. Two months ago, I was still going out to eat, grocery shopping without scrubbing everything in hot soapy water, and dropping my kids off at school without a second thought. I didn't even know what social distancing was six months ago. Life in what I have started to think of as the aftertimes is starting to feel more normal. We all keep our distance. We shout to each other across the yard. One man in my neighborhood proudly announced to me yesterday that he is sewing his own masks to wear to the grocery out of vacuum bags. Here we are in the aftertimes. But information is a tricky thing. For example, New York State has by far the most reported cases in the United States. But accurate counts of who is testing and how many people they are testing is not often mentioned in the same conversation as the raw numbers. But it's so important. For example, the CDC website notes that as of today, approximately 163,000 tests have been performed in public health labs, but we know that testing is being performed in hospitals and academic settings. The COVID Tracking Project, a group compiling not only the number of positive cases and fatalities, but also the number of tests performed, cites an overall U.S. number of tests at approximately 1.2 million, of which about 214,000 have been positive. However, New York State, whose population is approximately 19 million, has performed approximately 220,000 tests, while the country's most populous state of California at 39 million has performed 31,000 tests. And we know that testing is scarce, and the population of patients who qualify in many states is restricted, and not the same in every state. My problem with the numbers coming at me is that scientifically, they don't make sense. In common parlance, we are not comparing apples to apples more like watermelons to kiwi to a bag of walnuts. And many labs are so far behind because PCR testing is labor-intensive, comma, labor is scarce, and reagents are scarce, that the results we know now reflect testing from sometimes days or even weeks ago. So how can we approach this pandemic as scientists? How can we treat the numbers responsibly? Early, I wanted to know everything. I remember where I was when I found out there were documented cases of community spread in California, Washington State, and New York State. I can still remember the language from the Twitter feed of an Italian doctor who pleaded with people to help him. How grim it all was. But of course now, it isn't reasonable to track it all, nor is it healthy for someone like me who teeters on the edge with a mind that races with the what-ifs even in the much less serious situations. My answer in this situation has been to select a few succinct, knowledgeable sources and people to check in with once a day, usually in the morning, and otherwise stay away. I limit my news to one show a day. I signed up for the Washington Post newsletter and try not to check their website unless I'm doing research. Too much knowing, too many facts, and I hit overload. On that note, Twitter is a tricky and dangerous space for so many reasons. 
but I found that early in the pandemic, it was a great resource for a story that many were not yet taking seriously. And I have built a careful list of folks, mostly docs and scientists, who stick to the facts and give good, useful information. That is where I found today's guest, Dr. Howard Foreman, who describes himself this way in his Twitter profile. Emergency slash trauma hashtag radiologist, health policy slash econ professor, former U.S. Senate staff, hashtag COVID-19, hashtag conservative Democrat. Dr. Foreman is many things, all of them impressive. Professor of Radiology and Biomedical Imaging, Economics and Public Health and Health Policy. Professor in the Practice of Management, Director of the MD, MBA Program, Director of Healthcare Curriculum, MBA for Executives Program, all at Yale. After checking in on his feed for weeks, I contacted him and was delighted when he agreed to be one of the first guests on my podcast. I think you will find his interview illuminating. I know that I did. It's coming up here in just a bit. First, I wanted to touch on one other subject while I'm talking about information. Dr. Foreman and I talk a lot about not knowing the denominator in this outbreak. And while that is true, I also feel that there is so much about the virus we do not know. How transmissible is it? This is the fancy term epi folks call r naught. A group in a recent article, r naught is described this way, open quote. A number of groups have estimated r naught for this new coronavirus. The Imperial College group has estimated r naught to be somewhere between 1.5 and 3.5. Most modeling simulations that project future cases are using r naughts in that range. But this is a wide range. And every time you ask one question, many others pop up. How contagious are people before they show symptoms? How infectious are asymptomatic folks? Can talking to someone spread the disease? Or are coughs required? I have seen several personalized stories lately that seem to indicate that widespread to many from the infected and sometimes unknowingly infected few is happening. A funeral in Georgia that led to widespread disease and overcrowded rural hospitals. A church group in California who went to choir practice and now has seen many members fall ill and several die. A birthday party in one state in the U.S. that became a seed for spread to the region and other parts of the world. Somehow these stories with faces and places and effects on real people stay with me more than the raw numbers. It shows how behind we were. No one would have gone to these gatherings if we as a country had known what was to come. I believe that if we had all the facts, human beings would want to protect each other. Testing has become the drumbeat. Even in the limited media I am consuming, the consensus is rapidly being reached that without mapping this epidemic, we will never find our way back out. Deployment of rapid, reliable diagnostic testing must be a high priority. Companies have gained approval to ship these rapid tests, though they have not yet been brought online in the field. And in order to triage those with putative immunity back to the community, and in my mind, identify healthcare workers who can relax, say, perhaps 10% while navigating the eye of a hurricane, antibody testing is being brought online. All of this will change the game. Anthony Fauci said this last weekend that if we don't, we don't set the timeline, the virus sets the timeline. And I couldn't agree more. To see that timeline, we have to test. Now for my interview with Dr. Foreman. Welcome, Dr. Foreman. I wanted to, to bring you in as someone with expertise in healthcare management and policy to talk a little bit about where we are in the pandemic. People keep pointing to how our curves compare to countries like Italy, Spain, and the United Kingdom. And what I'm wondering as someone, as a laboratory professional, how can we make really make these comparisons when the per capita testing is so different here in the United States as compared to 
these other countries that people like to talk about? Yeah, this is a really important point. I mean, people use the date that the first case was found as somewhat of a reference value. Some people talk about looking at the uh, date that first deaths were identified. All these things can be used in some sort of pseudoscientific fashion to figure out where exactly we are on the curve. But your point is very important. It's one that I spent a lot of time trying to make yesterday about Florida, and that is that if you're not testing adequately, you really don't know where you are. If you're not identifying deaths adequately, you're also sort of undermining our ability to figure out where you are. And so a state like Florida right now is, test, is uh, testing at about one-third the rate of Massachusetts, and I think 60% of the rate of Illinois. Illinois admits to being woefully behind. So when I look at figures out of Florida, I'm very suspect as to where they are and just how bad the epidemic is there. I, I totally agree. I don't know if you saw the Washington Post opinion piece. It was written by the partner of a woman in Indiana who was the first person to pass away, known um, related to COVID. And just the story that he told about his partner and how she apparently worked for a rental car company driving cars. And so he thinks that's maybe where she contracted the disease. But for the first part of her hospital stay, she didn't get a test. She didn't qualify for a test because she hadn't been in contact with anyone who was known to have COVID. And as someone who, like I said, is intimately involved with testing, I still see testing algorithms limited to people who are hospitalized, who are very sick. And I just wonder how many people were missing compared to a country like especially South Korea, where they really are doing wide testing. You don't have to have sort of known contacts. And I think they're even testing some asymptomatic people. So I think that's going to be really important going forward. And I still wonder, what is our denominator? And do we even know all of the cases that we do have because some states have such limited testing. So I think that's going to be really important going forward. But for everyone listening, definitely follow Dr. Foreman on Twitter. He is a good source of information, real data coming out of these countries, especially in Europe lately, to give you an idea about what's happening. So a question for you, what worries you about the trends from your 30,000 foot view? Should we expect our situation in at least parts of the United States to look like Italy did and it seems to be getting a little bit better in Italy, but maybe like Spain does right now. Yeah, so I think, you know, so Spain may have finally peaked in new cases, but certainly hasn't peaked, at least not yet, in daily deaths, which are just massive. Mm -hmm. And in these countries, the the crude case fatality rate, you know, is, is coming closer in Spain to 10%, and Italy is currently at 11% which are just you know, grotesque by any standards that you would have. Compare that to the United States right now, where we're you know, sort of in that 1.5% to 1.7% range. And as you point out, the issue is the denominator. Uh, death at some point become harder and harder to hide. I still think that in a lot of states in the country, we are not seeing anywhere near the full scope of death, because as you know, Deaths um, in elderly people from pneumonia happen all the time. And if a single mm -hmm. hospital had one or two extra deaths every day from a bad pneumonia in an elderly person, it would not necessarily be labeled as COVID unless the patient was tested. And if that hospital mm -hmm. is not aggressively testing, then it's just another person dying of pneumonia. 
so deaths become harder to harder to to hide because at some point it becomes impossible for people not to recognize these cases. I worked last night in the emergency room, and whereas we used to see about a month ago these unusual cases that today we routinely just say likely COVID. Uh, a month ago, we would see them and, and sort of shrug and wonder whether they could be this mm-hmm. serious illness that, you know, presumably was in the United States, but we weren't seeing big numbers. Mm-hmm. As it becomes more difficult to hide those cases, I think the death counts will become more and more reliable, but the case finding won't. And that's why, as you point out, this denominator issue, because mm-hmm. deaths mm-hmm. will grow faster than case finding unless you're testing a lot. Yeah. And, and, my concern continues to be just from asymptomatic individuals and not testing them. And so then obviously they don't fit into the denominator, but also from a public policy standpoint, you don't know who is infected and who may be spreading the disease. And I feel that the media narrative has been mainly one of isolating vulnerable populations. I I have, like you, like you wrote about, I don't think that that is possible to do from a, from a, purely logistical standpoint, but also if you have asymptomatic folks wandering around just sort of infecting people and not even knowing they're sick, we're never going to be able to get to the bottom of how it's actually spreading. So I I think really the first thing we need to do is just start widely testing, but I think that's a pretty consensus standpoint at this point. So just to ask one quick question, since you mentioned working in the ED, I assume that's in in your role as a radiologist? Correct. So I was reading stories about places and I and I have contacts with people in countries like Iran and Italy. It seems like eventually they stop testing people because the radiologic findings and the and obviously I'm not an expert, but the ground glass findings on even chest X-ray and CT become so characteristic that in a place that has community spread, they stop testing. Is that the kind of experience you're seeing in your hospital without giving out any obviously pub- private health information? But is that the kind of thing you're seeing? sort of a classic so, presentation? So I, I would say that we definitely do not stop testing. We're trying to confirm every case. Um, okay. and, and I think that's the right approach, as you pointed out. I think the consensus view is that the only reason not to test is if you can't test, if you don't have the capacity to test. Right, right. Presumptive diagnosis is okay. We certainly are, I think at this moment, and I can only speak from my viewpoint, but I think the clinicians, mm-hmm now are making presumptive coronavirus diagnoses with the understanding that once the test comes back, they will move from the presumptive category into the confirmed category or not. And and let me just say there are cases, as I saw on Friday, there are cases that we see that while they are presumptive, the patients have enough other contributing illnesses that they might, for instance, have a different type of a presentation that would give you ground glass opacities on a CT scan. Okay. Okay. Is it just seemed in places like China and Iran they would, you know, they would do the the flu panel which was more readily available. They would do the, you know, the sed rate and the white blood cell count and all those things that are sort of characteristic and then do the COVID testing, which they eventually got to these rapid turnaround times. And we're starting to hear stories in the United States about 30 minute, 45 minute turnaround time, bedside testing with even PCR testing, which would be great. But I don't think we're there yet. You hear stories now about people waiting a week to get their tests back. So I, I just can imagine from a clinical perspective, 
that, like you said, they'll have to just presume the person has it and sort of isolate them accordingly and then just wait and see what happens. But I don't know that unlike with something like bacterial pneumonia, that the treatment would even be that different. So, I mean, like you said, it's all about the denominator. So we'll get there. Another question for you, what lessons can we learn from this pandemic? And as someone with experience in politics, what policies would you enact to prevent this in the future? And as a follow-up, how practical do you think it is to expect that things will change based on our current experience? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that, you know, the first thing is, and, and I say this sort of as much as I can be very political about things, I say this apolitically, we have had horrible coordination at the federal level. This is not an indictment of of a political party. It has just been abysmal. And I, and I think they've acknowledged it in many cases. So what we need, I think, is a much, we need a long-term plan for how we manage pandemics and, you know, large-scale health emergencies. Uh, we need to have coordination that is managed in the way that you manage a war or a crisis. And we've not had that. Mm-hmm. If we knew that an ally was about to be invaded in five days, we would be able to mobilize personnel and equipment and all the materials we need to the front within probably 48 hours or less. And Mm -hmm. we should do no less in a situation like this, where we're dealing with the potential loss of hundreds of thousands of lives. So I think of all the things that we could do better in the future is to coordinate at the federal level better and which agencies get involved in that, I think is an area for people that are, you know, policy wonks to, to think more about, but we have a FEMA, we have a CDC, we have other bodies that already exist. We have a public, you know, health service, a commission core of healthcare professionals. We have a national guard with healthcare professionals and we have a military with a lot of healthcare professionals. It is very easy for me to imagine that you could have set up a war room in late January with leaders from all of those agencies working and beginning a a war plan that would have put us on a path to have massive testing across the country by the end of February at the latest, where we would have Mm -hmm. been able to determine where ventilators need to go and how we're going to get them there and how we're going to manufacture them and how to make certain that we have the appropriate uh, personal protective equipment for our frontline healthcare providers. I agree. And I have noticed on different forms of media, people are starting to refer to healthcare professionals as the sort of soldiers in this fight. And I don't know about you, but when I signed up to go to medical school, I never thought of myself as a soldier. And it's it's a metaphor that kind of takes my breath away. And seeing my classmates, my coworkers sort of go into situations where they don't have the PPE they need. And like you said, that is something we can you know reflect on later and do better on. Did you ever think that you would get to a point where healthcare workers were referred to as frontline sort of combatants? Is that something that you expected? Is this surprising to you or how do you feel about that? You know, I grew up in, you know, in medicine, at least I grew up in the 1980s. I was in medical school graduating in 1989. So, you know, the front line in the war against HIV AIDS was also healthcare Mm -hmm. providers. So Mm -hmm. it's not that foreign to me to realize that, you know, for me, I've seen 
uh, physicians be enormously compassionate and doing things that other people in society were uh, stigmatizing and running away from. So it's not surprising to me to see uh, healthcare providers uh, being on the front line. I don't like to think of them as combatants, but they are absolutely yeah. on the front line. Yeah, yeah. And and I think most physicians, all physicians I know, are are willing to do that. I think the disconnect for me is asking them to do that in some situations where they do not have sort of optimal ways to protect themselves and sort of having to ask them to make that choice, which hopefully we can resolve before this thing really hits the peak. Let's see. My next question for you. Yeah. Let me just add add back to that, though. I will say that for those of us that practiced in the 1980s, did my Mm -hmm. intro in 1989, you were constantly at risk of sticking yourself with a needle and having a lethal infection. So while the number of healthcare providers who got AIDS from that, the fear was probably higher because not only was the disease uniformly lethal at that point, but it was also Mm -hmm. stigmatized. So, you know, I I forget now whether it's four or five uh, needle sticks that I had, but I had multiple needle sticks between 1987 and and, uh, 1991. And, um, And I just remember the fear of converting during that whole time and so, I, right. so I'm just going to push back on that one thing that I do think we've right. been here before. And okay. I think healthcare professionals always rise up to the challenge. Yes, yes, we do. And and I had autopsy attendings who told stories about doing autopsies with no gloves. And this was back in the day before I think they had really fully characterized hepatitis C. And it's almost, I mean, now that it's just sort of a paradigm shift, it's more than we can imagine now. For you, as a person who straddles the business world and the medical profession, do you feel like, and I I don't want to ask this question in a way to cause controversy, but do you feel like any of the current situation about where we stand in this pandemic is due to the fact that most in the medical profession would not consider themselves business people? Do you think that plays any role? You know, I don't know. I mean, I do think, obviously, being someone who has, you know, prior to this, mostly defined my career about developing healthcare leaders. I have a a tremendous investment in seeing healthcare professionals of all types being educated in in matters of leadership management, finance, policy, and so on. On the other hand, I think that each of us can play a different role. Not all of us have to be managers. Not all of us have to be trained in finance. And so I think what what is clear is that those that do have that background are stepping up, stepping into the void mm-hmm. and doing what they can mm-hmm. each in their own individual way. And I've been heartened throughout the process to see, you know, probably I probably have well over a thousand alums or a few thousand alums within the healthcare profession one way or another, and to see so many of them stepping up into major roles to to fight this, you know, brings me some degree of satisfaction in a time of, of a lot of despair. Yes, I agree. And I, I think it will be interesting to see perhaps people in, in the millennial generation and Generation Z, it will be interesting to see how many of them are motivated, especially through healthcare professionals, to become more involved in policymaking, 
just to try to make it better in the future. I think that's definitely something to hope for. And then the last question I have for you, and thank you so much for joining me today, is this is a time of, I would say, general anxiety for the for the general public, but especially for healthcare practitioners. So as someone who looks at this from the 30,000 foot view and who keeps his finger on the data coming out of so many different parts of the world, what, what gives you hope about where we're headed and how this thing will hopefully wrap itself up? So, you know, South Korea consistently gives me hope every day. It also is a place where I can become grounded in reality because when I look at South Korea, it does not have this infinitesimally small case fatality rate, which people thought they would have, despite the fact that they have been consistently testing a lot of asymptomatic individuals. Their case fatality rate is now 1.6%. So I think that it puts to rest the idea that this is flu-like. It's not. But, but South Korea does give us a path forward. It shows us that massive testing, that case finding, and uh, contact tracing can be very helpful in getting us back to normal, in, in managing both domestic and international travelers that return to your cities to be able to see means to mitigate the potential for them to continue to spread. South Korea gives me hope. I also look at it a lot of other countries like Germany, who are also aggressively testing and, and doing very well. And, and even countries like Italy, Iran, other countries are giving us so much valuable information about what they have learned from the devastation that they have faced, that I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to learn from that and that we're going to be better for it. I think that's a, a really great note to end it on. Um, Dr. Foreman, I know you're busy and I, I thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. Well. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Once again, I would like to thank Dr. Foreman for agreeing to speak with us. And I encourage you all to seek him out on social media if that's your thing. For my final diagnosis today, one thing I would like to touch on from our interview is the idea of physicians as heroes or warriors. This language is everywhere I look and listen these days. And I was surprised by Dr. Foreman's answer to me about the HIV epidemic. Though I have heard this situation compared to our current outbreak, I have to admit I never thought about the personal toll that the frontline healthcare workers paid during the time of the HIV and AIDS epidemic. By the time I was in medical training, HIV and AIDS were being managed like chronic diseases. Stories of pathologists performing autopsies without gloves or gown and grossing specimens without personal protection seemed anathema to me and my fellow trainees when they were told during the time of my training. It seems like another world. Infectious diseases have always been in the front of my mind, though I have no memory of a time in medical school or residency when I walked into a situation with a patient who I was truly scared could pass a disease to me that would take my life. Sure, there were times that I performed post-mortem exams on patients with multiple known communicable diseases. I worked as a medical examiner with patients who had high-risk conditions, but I always had a negative pressure room and all the PPE I wanted. I was careful, but I wasn't scared. It's a new world where physicians are showing up to work every day knowing they are not being given the most protection that science has to offer and possibly making that decision with their families and loved ones in mind, with the weighty fear of infecting those around them without knowing it. In his recent editorial in the New York Times titled, In a Pandemic, Do Doctors Still Have a Duty to Treat? Dr. Sanjeev Jauhar addresses this topic. 
What is the obligation of a physician to treat patients in the time of a viral pandemic when, as he quotes, particularly one in which healthcare workers are getting infected and there is a dearth of personal protective equipment? He goes on to cite ethical guidelines that put our duty as physicians to treat patients over our personal risk. He pushes back gently against this notion, noting that in some countries, healthcare workers are becoming infected at high rates in the current epidemic. In Spain, for example, they account for 14% of infections, and that the spread to our families is a heavy risk to assume. He asks the question that all healthcare workers are grappling with, quote, how do we balance our professional and personal obligations, close quote. In some past epidemics, like those of the plague, physicians fled from danger and possible death. He cites modern examples, an Ebola outbreak where patients were abandoned, employees not showing up to work during the recent SARS outbreak, and notes that during the AIDS outbreak, some physicians refused to treat patients. He comes to the conclusion that although it is possible healthcare workers will rebel, he believes professional obligations will win out, but cautions that this is not without conditions. Proper protective equipment will be necessary, as will an effort from the public to practice social distancing, thus giving the healthcare system a chance to handle the numbers of sick seeking care. I'd like to close with his closing statement, as it has found its way into sticking in my head. Quote, social order relies on reciprocity. Imposing outsized burdens on one group without sacrifice from others is unfair. Doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers may be heroes in this pandemic, but we will not be martyrs. Close quote. Surely pathologists assume less of a risk than our fellow healthcare workers on the front lines. My thoughts are with all of you. Thank you for listening. All articles and references can be found in the show notes, as can places to provide feedback. Take care and stay safe.